Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future. I'm Dr. Jody, and as an anxiety expert and adult child and adolescent doctor of clinical psychology, I'm on a mission to create a world where every person can manage anxiety and thrive. Over the last 30 years, I've coached global organizations and worked across clinical and educational settings, including Harvard Medical School. In 2015, I founded The Anxiety Clinic with a purpose to help adults, kids and teens to overcome anxiety, stress, behavioural challenges, low mood and burnout and live life with happiness and well-being. As a keynote speaker and executive coach, I love to help individuals, leaders and teams to master their mindset, enhance well-being and achieve resilient high performance. I also share my knowledge in my best-selling book, The Mind Strength Method, Four Steps to Curb Anxiety, Conquer Worry, and Build Resilience. Join me as I go in session with celebrities, elite athletes, and business leaders to find out how they've leveraged the superpower of anxiety, risen above challenges, and aligned to passion and purpose. So it's a fantastic pleasure to be connecting today with Sarah Berry, who I have known for a number of years in a professional capacity with great admiration of the work that you do, Sarah. So welcome to the show. It's a joy to be chatting directly. How are you doing? Yeah, really well. It's lovely to be chatting with you too. Amazing. So how do we know each other originally? When did it start? That's a good question. I was actually trying to remember. Did we meet at Happiness and Its Causes a number of years ago? I think that was perhaps the first meeting and then I feel like our paths crossed many times after that. Is that that your recollection or...? Yeah, absolutely. And I loved that event, Happiness and Its Causes. It was such a joy to speak at that event because it's one of those beautiful opportunities to bring a community together globally around a mission to help people, a mission to align people to well-being. What was it about Happiness and Its Causes that drew you to that event? I mean, I really have enjoyed the mix of speakers that they have on a sort of separate level um, apart from you know finding it really interesting the the different talks and different conversations I guess professionally when they asked me to come along it was a challenge for me because you know I'm I'm sure we're going to touch on this public speaking is something that I've really struggled with so I think it was sort of wanting to get out of my comfort zone and put myself in that sort of a position in the sort of space of something that I found meaningful and interesting and I guess aligns with the work that I do. Amazing and gosh that talks to so much about you know your care factor and the fact that you were experiencing anxiety in that public speaking space and I know you're familiar with some of the messages that I deliver around anxiety it means that you care. That is that care factor with everything that you do, Sarah. It's just such incredible work. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the work that you do as a journalist. Yeah, well, so I work as the lifestyle health editor at Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and I write about fitness, nutrition, mental health, well-being, anxiety, relationships, all of the stuff, I guess. And, and the sort of tools, you know, um, to, to try and 
improve the way we manage those things and, you know, essentially have a better quality life. In this role that you play, what are some of the stories that you've done that you feel is, you know, has dug deep and maybe created a ripple effect, possibly controversial ripple effects? What are some of your standouts? That is a tough question because (laughs) I've been doing, I've been at SMH for 11 years. Most of the stuff that I do, it's pretty fast-paced. So sort of trying to think about individual stories is, I find, really challenging in the moment. We've done some really good stories together. Absolutely. So a lot on anxiety, I think, that people really resonate with because it is so common. I've recently done some stuff on sleep, which I find really interesting. I've really enjoyed that. I did a six-part series looking at sleep and, you know, I find all the stuff around circadian rhythm fascinating. The way we, you know, use light, the timing of eating, I find that all really interesting. They're tiny little tweaks that we can make that can really make a difference to the way our body functions and even like the knock-on effects to mood and everything else and sleep, obviously. I've got uh, an article coming out in Good Weekend about endurance racing and why people want to do that. And I think what I found really interesting about that is when you're going that distance, beyond the marathon it tends to be about personal exploration it's less about the physical side of it obviously you need to have a certain level of fitness to get through it but everyone that I spoke with it was about pushing a boundary within themselves and everyone had very personal reasons for doing it and I found that really interesting because I guess we look at something like that and we assume that the people who do those sorts of events are athletes or they're crazy, you know. Um, but I spoke with just very normal people, people who wouldn't have considered themselves even sporty when they were at school. You know, quite a few called themselves uncoordinated and they're going and doing these events. And I think that's a really interesting space. The breadth of, of stuff that is in under the kind of health and wellbeing banner is very broad, which makes it always interesting. So interesting. And I'd love to talk about this um, story that that you are doing on endurance. And I'd love to talk about sleep as well. These are fascinating topics and can touch in all of our lives. So starting with endurance and the X factor, the differentiators, if you were to distill it down to some of the key strategies that enable high performance to such an extent, what would they be? Oh, goodness. Um, I haven't actually thought of it like that. Because I guess when I went into it, I've never run a marathon before. So I ran, I ran the ultra before I did the marathon. Incredible. Um, so I, I was going in it to finish and to survive, yeah. <laughs> not to not as sort of high performance, so to speak. Yes. Um, but I think obviously the mental component is mm. huge in that yes. sort of an event. You obviously have to train physically to be on your feet and be okay, your body to be okay being up and sort of active for that many hours. Yes. But I think the main thing is the mental component because when you're out there, you're on your own or, you know, I, I had a race partner, so it's just the two of you and you're out in sort of the middle of the bush yeah. and 
you know that you've got a very long way to go and the only way is through. So how you kind of cope with that when your body's hurting, you're tired, you've had enough, you want it to be over, (laughs) where you go to in those places. Or, you know, I had a moment um, about 20Ks in where I felt quite dizzy and sort of nauseous, didn't think I was going to make 150 kilometres. So, you know, it's what happens in those moments. And I think one thing that really struck me in that moment um, and that I perhaps couldn't have realised in in any other situation until I was sort of really pushed to that place was that my internal voice was actually quite supportive. And I think, you know, if I'd have tried this sort of an event maybe five years ago, ten years ago, I think it would have been very different. Yeah. I think I would have been chastising myself for not being fit enough, not being strong enough, not being, you know, whatever enough, whereas I really didn't. And that was really nice. It was actually a really lovely moment of going, oh, I, for the first time in my life, have my own back and that felt good and I'll go slowly and I'll take my time and I've got nowhere else to be. So let's just keep going. Isn't that fantastic? There's so much to that that is really, you know, when we talk about mindset and digging deep and the differentiator between enabling an individual to do these ultra marathons and not, it does come down to the power of the mind. Mm -hmm. I'm just reflecting on when I said um, the keys to high performance. And then it was really, really interesting to hear you say, well, I wasn't really thinking about high performance. I was just thinking about finishing. And it's quite fascinating because finishing an ultra marathon <laughs> is definitely my definition of high performance. So that's that's incredible. Let's hone in on those mindset tools and that internal voice. I was watching Limitless, the show by Chris Hemsworth the other night, and uh, it was fascinating. You, you watched it as well? Yeah, I started you know, that the power of the mind and the power of the internal voice and what it tells us. So, and how, and the difference between saying you can't do it versus you can do it and the impact that that has on our physiology just by noticing the stories that are playing out. And it was so beautiful to hear you talking to that in the moment when you're feeling dizzy and your body just wants to say, stop. So what was it that enabled you to have this shift between as you said, what you used to do and what you were doing in this moment? Great question. I think a number of things. I think experience and age (laughs) help, you know. Funnily enough, I think being a parent helps, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that has really helped me to be more compassionate with myself. Mm -hmm. I think before I had kids, I wasn't able to do that or, or, you know, I really struggled with that. It's having kids, having these little humans and, you know, you see them with all of their flaws and all of their beautiful qualities in a whole holistic kind of a way and I think, and you love them completely for that mm. and I think in that it has allowed me to appreciate myself in a more holistic way too, including mm. flaws, you know, or perceived flaws. Yeah. So I, I think comp- so much. Yeah, compassion helps, experience helps. I was thinking about this earlier because, you know, anxiety for me has been a big issue for a couple of decades, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I think, and this sort of goes to, to this endurance race, kind of exposure, you know, putting yourself out of your comfort zone and appreciating that you're okay. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's been a really big thing. And I've done that 
to varying degrees and sort of made a point of doing that to varying degrees in the last couple of decades as a way to manage my own anxiety and as a way to tell myself that I can do the things that I feel afraid of. So this was, I guess, another example of going well outside my comfort zone yeah, and, and kind of going, it's okay, I can do more than I think I'm capable of. Yes. And as you get that feedback, right, every time you do that, I did the same thing. I used to have this, you know, terrible anxiety with taking off and landing when I flew and I went skydiving and, you know, that's not going to work for everyone, but that really helped me to be okay and to sort of let go of some of the, I guess, control that I like to have. So I think exposure was another factor and I think just sort of consciously reframing those sorts of experiences has Mm -hmm. really helped me as well, which is, you know, one of your tools. But, yeah, so sort of going into something that perhaps I feel daunted by or I'm not sure I can do it. I'm not sure what the outcome is going to be. There's that sort of real unknown, mm. which can be quite scary. Um, and instead of, I suppose, focusing on the fear, focusing on, well, A, if I wasn't afraid, would I want to do this? Mm. B, what, what excites me about it? What, mm. you know, what do I want to get out of this? So I think going into this event, there were sort of a number of tools that helped mm. to tackle it and get through it that I have kind of been practising in the rest of my life. Wow. Gosh, there's so many gold nuggets in there. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Lots of things that I'm really curious to, to find out more about. So first of all, talking to your point around being a parent, uh, yeah. because this is a, something that is really fascinating when you become a parent and So, and you talked to the compassion that comes from that space. So, and I love you share such beautiful things on social media about your your joy in parenting and the challenges of parenting and the quirkiness of, of, of what it's all about. And boy, can I relate to all of that. First of all, your family, how old are your kids now? Yeah, so I have two daughters, uh, a a two-and-a-half-year-old, Romy, and uh, Rafferty is five at the end of next month. Beautiful. Well, I had a five-, three-, and one-year-old at one stage. (laughs) (laughs) Intense. Intense, intense, never a dull moment. No. (laughs) But the joys in, in that chaos and that craziness where, as you said, we're forced into a position where we have to let go of control because otherwise it will just tip us into overwhelm when we've got uh, little ones around or big ones. I love how you related it back to some of the tools that you drew on that you've learned from parenting. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about those tools. And in the context of doing this ultra marathon, what was it about parenting that helped you? Uh, beyond the compassion piece? Well, well, let's talk to the compassion piece. What is it about compassion? Because there's so much power in compassion. And I'd love to hear a bit more about what does that mean to you? I guess, you know, any of us who are A-types or uh, perfectionists, I guess the it's it's the double-edged sword, right? It's, you know, you strive to do things well and you want to please and you want to, you know, do all of those things. But the flip side of it is you tend to be quite sort of tough on yourself and 
there's no room for error. There's no room for sort of softness or acceptance. So what drives you also can, I guess, hold you back in, mm. in a way. And I think through parenting, as I mentioned, it, it's, it's appreciating the whole of both these little humans that we're raising and that you have this complete love for and reflecting that back to yourself and sort of starting to appreciate that you're actually okay as a whole human being, that you don't have to just be one thing the whole time, which is succeeding, perfect, doing things at a certain level. You're also allowed to be learning and figuring it out and not always doing everything right mm-hmm. um, and have certain flaws that you need to work on and that that's okay. That's part of the whole of who you are and that doesn't make you any less. And I guess that's the sort of, that's the piece in there for me that I felt like all of those perceived flaws or things that I couldn't do as well as I'd like made me less. Mm-hmm. And I think it's flipping that to being like, no, it makes you whole. It makes you human. Makes and you- yeah, and so I think that's that's been a big parenting lesson for me, which I suppose, you know, extends out to the rest of my life and the way that I view myself and I think other people. I think I'm more compassionate generally since having mm. kids. And how brilliant is that? That's just so powerful because your capacity to build awareness around that and then actually aligned to it is phenomenal, you know, because it's it's one thing to be aware of it and then it's another thing to do it. With compassion as opposed to the should be's and the not good enoughs and the I need to be more and I need to do more and I'm not uh, I'm not perfect and so so I'm a failure. Moving out of fight or flight, moving out of the struggle with imperfection into kindness and compassion around being human. It's so magnificent to hear you say that and to hear your experiences in that, both in the parenting space and now leveraging that learning into something that it, that we would potentially conceptualize as so vastly different being an ultramarathon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then taking it to all aspects of your life as well, potentially into your working space and um, and anywhere. I'm very curious to know what actually defines, I should know this, well, this is telling that I have never done an ultramarathon, <laughs> but what actually defines an ultramarathon? What is the, the length of an ultramarathon? So it can be defined in two different ways. It's either anything beyond a marathon, so 42K, or it's any race that takes six hours or more. So Mm -hmm. I think the definition, I think, depends a little bit on is it just running, is it sort of multidiscipline, you know, because obviously you could, the the one that I did was um, trail running, mountain biking, kayaking, and a little bit of um, whitewater rafting thrown in just for fun. Wow. Sensational. Oh, I'm inspired, I have to say. I, I want to practice that, feel the fear and do it anyway and take steps out of my comfort zone, which you did, bam. And so let's talk to your experience with anxiety and this strategy of sitting with the discomfort and not allowing fear to boss you around and tell you to choose a void, your choosing approach, and you found that super helpful. When did you first notice um, anxiety in your life? I was thinking about this earlier. The first time I really remember it vividly was I think when I was at uni and I remember sitting in tutorials and 
just having to say my name would send me into hives. And and it was really funny because, you know, once it was that sort of um, the build-up to that of having everyone going around the room and sort of just having to say your name and I used to dread it. Like I'd, I'd try to go to the bathroom when that happened just so I could avoid it because it created so much anxiety. Once that was over and in the sort of natural flow of the classroom, I didn't have any problems speaking up. It was just if I was asked to do something. So you can probably tell me what that's all about. <laughs> that, that was my first really vivid experience. And through uni, I struggled with a lot. I used to get hives. I would avoid a lot of stuff just because it created so much sort of distress, really. Isn't that interesting? And I suppose if we think about the difference between speaking up when you know what you've wanting to say and you've been able to rehearse it in your mind and there's that element of control in that space it's a little bit perhaps less anxiety provoking as opposed to being asked to speak because of the uncertainty around what are they going to ask and (laughs) am I going to know the answer and where does our mind go to right it goes to no you're going to stuff up you're not going to be good enough So how interesting that you noticed this in university. So I I suppose if we go back a little bit more just to sort of unravel perhaps where some of this came from, I'm I'm so curious to know a little bit more about you and where you grew up and what were some of your early life experiences. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Sydney. I grew up in Willoughby on um, on the north side of Sydney. Uh, My parents actually still live in the same house that we grew up in. And it was myself and I've got two older brothers and mum and dad who have been together, I think. They just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, I think. Oh, amazing. Congratulations, mum and dad. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, gosh. Okay. So my early life um, was pretty much all about sport. You know, that was my happy place. That was, I think, probably the one place I, I think I was quite shy, but... When I did sport, I had that sense of my own strength and mm-hmm. sense of kind of power um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a positive way. And so I really dove into that and that took up pretty much all of my time <laughs> as a kid. Um, but, again, I think the sort of the combination of factors, A, my personality type, I think, you know, I pushed myself very hard. Mum and dad weren't the kind of parents who made us do anything or, you know, they didn't yell on the sidelines. Like they weren't those parents at all. But I pushed myself very hard. My eldest brother was exactly the same. And so we really struggled. Uh, And I think probably if if your sort of soul self-esteem is in one place Mm -hmm. and for us that was sport, when you didn't succeed, that was, it was more than just about, losing Mm. you know I put a lot of pressure on myself to win and I think you know and that meant I I was doing really well I was going to nationals in running and breaking school records and and doing really well with that Um, but at the same time my mum was really struggling with depression Mm. and she was I think when I was sort of about 10, 11, she was hospitalised quite a few times with that and suicide attempts. And I think the combination of maybe puberty pressure I was putting on myself, you know, going into high school, big change that sort of came with that. And mum, what was going on with mum and sort of maybe not being able to 
not having the tools to cope with that, I got glandular fever and I think once I got sick, I just stopped. Like I, I just didn't know how to get back up. That ended up sort of becoming an eating disorder and I ended up missing two years of school, the end of year seven to the end of year nine and was sort of in and out of hospital. During that time, I stopped walking, I stopped talking. You know, it was, it was pretty intense. Sort of doctors thought I'd die of heart failure. Uh, so I think at that point, I didn't have any sense of even finishing high school. You know, it was sort of, I didn't know I would live to that point. So I had kind of no ambitions. I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't do the thing that had given me a sense of confidence and power anymore. And yeah, but I, I did. I went back to school sort of at the end of year nine and mm. finished school and went to uni and, and did all of that. So Wow. Incredible. What a story. Thank you so much for sharing such deeply personal things and your experiences and going through this age and seeing your mum go through such incredibly difficult um, life experiences. How did you respond to that? How, you know, as a kid, seeing your mum go through this, what was going on through your mind that you can recall at the time? I mean, I think I just internalised it all and and I guess that ended up expressing itself in the eating disorder and, and the sort of not talking. And, but I think, I guess as a kid, you kind of personalise everything, right? So it's, it's that sensation of, well, if I was, you know, obviously mum was not, not well mentally and, um, and I guess that that sort of, had a knock-on effect to, you know, she could be short-tempered or she could be a bit unpredictable in terms of how she was emotionally. And mm-hmm. so there was a, a level of kind of stepping on eggshells and a, a level of, you know, thinking maybe if I was less this or less that, then she wouldn't be upset mm-hmm. or she would be happy or, you know. So, so I guess those were the sorts of ways I perhaps personalised some of her experience standing as a kid that it had nothing to do with me or all my brothers. So, yeah, and I, and I guess that played out in sort of, you know, the behaviours that came after that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so understandable as a kid that that's what we do. It's like, <laughs> what is wrong with me that this is going on? And then turning to ways to try and regain control amidst all of the uncertainty and all of the turmoil that's going on around you. And that control that is gained with an unhelpful pathway of getting control with eating. And is that sort of what, how you conceptualize that move into that um, turmoil of, of the eating disorder? Or was it something else for you? Yeah, I guess, you know, on reflection at the time, at the time, I think my, I think I was pushing myself so hard. I was doing sports seven days a week before school, after school. There was just a lot happening and I, I don't think I was coping with what was happening with mum. I had fear around that, you know. Is so she, much fear, yeah. Is she, am I going to come home this afternoon? Is she going to be there? Mm. There was uncertainty. So, I, you know, it's funny, like I, I remember, because I've thought about this a lot, I remember as a kid, you know, hearing my older brother talk about girls he knew who didn't eat and thinking that was crazy because, you know, I loved food. And, you know, I didn't think I was fat. Like I didn't, I thought I, I felt big, you know, because I was quite tall for my age. 
I began to feel like perhaps if I was somehow smaller or less present or, you know, took up less space, then that might have an impact on mum in a, in a sort of positive way, if that makes sense. So I think there was, there was some of that kind of that I was conscious of, but I, I think a lot of it wasn't particularly conscious. It was just needing to stop, not knowing how to, not knowing how to cope with everything that was happening. And then once I stopped, the kind of the fears built up around well, what happens now? You know, how do I go back to school? What if I don't have friends? What if I go back and I can't run anymore and I don't have that outlet? What do I do then? You know, and I that kept me stuck for a very long time, for, for a couple of years. Understandably um, so. Wow. And what, what role was Dad playing through this time in your life? Dad was a rock. Um, he's an incredible human being. But, you know, it was hard. He was working full time. He was trying to, he was paying for three kids' private school fees, which was always a struggle for them. Like it wasn't something that they did easily, but it, I guess for them education was something they really valued. And he was trying, my eldest brother was doing his HSC at the time and he had his wife in hospital and his daughter in hospital. I think, you know, he was just trying to keep things afloat as much as he could. Yes, absolutely. And what was it that enabled you to to move through the eating disorder and come out of the eating disorder and, um, you know, get on with this in- incredible life that you're living now? But at the time, sort of year seven to year nine, I think you said that it was at its worst. How did you get through? I think I probably changed doctors and I had a doctor who was a bit more compassionate, I think, around that time. So this was a sort of early, mid-90s. There was an approach that some doctors took of, well, she needs to fight. Mm. And so they're perhaps, they weren't particularly kind. And I think that if they had have perhaps known what, why I was doing it, they might not have taken that approach. Mm. Um, I wasn't really talking, so it was kind of probably quite hard for them to understand that. But um, I think eventually I, I did get a different doctor who was a bit more compassionate and gentle with me. And I think I probably needed that because it was coming from a place of, terror and pain you know and and sadness I mean it's hard I think anyone who's had an eating disorder it took a lot longer than that year seven to year nine you know it actually I would say that I didn't I wouldn't say that I had recovered until I was in my 30s Mm. in terms of sort of mental component or the psychological component that goes with an eating disorder yeah absolutely and I think you know the problem with eating disorders is that you ignore your cues you ignore your body's cues in one direction and then you know you have these sort of goals of well you need to put on x amount of weight in order to go home from hospital for instance and you start to ignore your body's cues in the other way as well and you know for a long time I sort of swung between the two and there was actually it was completely disconnected from my body's own cues Mm. and that a long time to re-engage with what my body actually needed and with what my body wanted and to listen to that. And that, that I think that was probably the hardest bit. Mm. But um, in terms of getting back from hospital, it was really little steps. It was sort of, you know, baby steps. You just do this little goal and you can go home. Do this little goal and you can get to this spot. And, it, you know, it was obviously two steps forward, one step back, eventually you know, I started back at school and that, you know, I was really lucky that um, my school was really supportive. They didn't 
sort of make me go back into the full curriculum. They were sort of like, come in, do a bit, see how you go. If you need to go home, it's fine. So there was a, there was a flexibility mm. around it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm lucky. Like I, even though mum was going through what she was going through, I never doubted that she loved me and, mm. you know, dad who was very supportive and very stable throughout mm. all um, I had good friends at school and mm. I was lucky that somehow I didn't have to repeat so I was able to go back in to my year with my friends from school. steps, But, you know, by the end of school I ended up athletics captain again so a couple of years later, you know, I made a big shift strength and tenacity and resilience and and again that beautiful power of compassion and recognizing that it was the people with the compassionate voice around you and it was your own compassionate voice that enabled you to get through and i love what you say about the power of small steps and that cumulative approach to it and celebrating those small steps and that can be so hard for somebody who has a belief that i have to be perfect in order to be good enough Mm-hmm. is a recognition around small steps are okay and responding yeah. with kindness is okay. Amazing to hear that you got through such an incredibly hard time in your life. Then to move forward and to find your feet and find your passion place again in mm-hmm. sport <laughs> and then to go on to back to university and in this time in your life and then anxiety took hold. What do you think it was about that sense of what if they ask me a question? What was the worry stories that was going on for you at this time? And what what were you studying at uni? When I first went to uni, uh, my undergrad was in film and theatre. So, um, you know, I did a master's in journalism a few years later, but originally I was studying film and theatre. And the worry stories, look, I think probably the main thing was the control piece, you know. I was okay speaking up when I was in control of when I spoke, but when I was asked to speak, it was that sort of fear of not being in control. But I guess, you know, the general sort of social worry stories were around being uninteresting or saying the wrong thing or, you know, embarrassing myself somehow. Absolutely. And this is what worry can do is like, don't do it, don't say it, you might embarrass yourself. And so, as you said, it's sort of this underlying uncertainty. And so did you notice things that you were avoiding because of that fear, such as allowing yourself the opportunity to be asked the question and running to the bathroom instead? Were there other things that you were avoiding because of that fear of loss of control? Yeah, I think so. I think I guess your world sort of shrinks to the size that you let it, right? And if you're not sort of going out and pushing out of your comfort zone, it just gets smaller. And I guess I found that at the time. I didn't sort of put myself out there socially or doing anything really that I found confronting or felt out of control doing. And what was the turning point that you found yourself to be able to make a stand to that and feel the fear and do it anyway and sort of expand your space and recognize that it is okay to make mistakes. It is okay to be imperfect. It's okay to sit with the discomfort of uncertainty. What enabled you to move into that? I don't know that there was a sort of a key turning point, but I guess I'd just say it's been very incremental. And being aware of that and sort of making the, the decision that that's not how 
I want to live my life. Um, I think education obviously helps. I guess I'm very lucky in the work that I do that I'm speaking with people like you and, you know, people who are experts in their fields. And it's a constant learning process for me as well. And I, I think appreciating that, that it's a journey and that I'm always learning and that, you know, you take on those learnings and you sort of, you know, you tweak a little bit. It doesn't have to be big. It's like those tiny little things all add up and suddenly you'll find yourself at a place where you go, oh, I'm able to do something that five years or 10 years ago, there's no chance, you know, there's no chance I would have let myself do that because it was too terrifying, but Mm -hmm. I'm okay. So yeah, it's it's less for me a, a moment as opposed to many moments. Absolutely. And that's so wonderful to hear that evolution, sitting with the uncertainty and taking steps into from anticipation, which typically is the worst bit into actual and allowing yourself to prove worry wrong and to allow yourself to learn that the cost that worry is telling us isn't what what eventuates in that situation. So building up resilience over time, how powerful is that? And what made you choose journalism? I actually fell into journalism. I didn't, it wasn't intentional. I went for a job quite randomly at uh, Women's Weekly and um, I'd been working in an art gallery straight out of uni. This job came up at Women's Weekly and um, I sort of went, oh, I'll, I'll go along for the interview and ended up, it was Deborah Thomas who was the editorial director at the time and um, she was looking for an assistant and office manager. And I went along, she and I got along really well and I ended up working with her for, for the next sort of three years and part of working in magazines at the time, and I think still today, is you become a, a slashy, which means you're this slash that slash that. So, you you know, I was assistant and office manager and I was doing some writing just sort of on the side and I was like, oh, this is fun. And eventually that kind of grew the more I was able to do sort of slightly longer pieces and it just grew quite organically. And then I freelanced for a two or three years. I was teaching yoga and freelance writing for a while for different magazines and then sort of went, okay, I'm I'm actually, you know, if I'm going to take this seriously, I should probably go back and study again. So at that point, went and re-enrolled and did my master's in journalism. So it was, it took a while. (laughs) How fantastic. And, you know, we, we kind of move through life and sometimes it's these opportunities and sometimes it's purposeful action. It's really fascinating to see, you know, the experiences that you've had and your life trajectory and now moving, leveraging the skills that you have in journalism into this platform, which you've worked in for many years now Mm -hmm. in the health space, um, the power to make a difference in this, which is so incredible. What would you say are the values that underpin the work that you do at the moment? I keep going back to the compassion thing, but I guess for me, that's a really big thing. It's a really big factor for me personally, but it's also a factor in how I approach writing, you know, because I think a lot of the stuff that I am writing about is, you know, people struggle with. And so I try to take a really compassionate approach to the way I present a subject or the way I discuss a subject in the hope of being able to make people feel understood or make people not feel judged, you know. I think the way that you write something, you know, you can write a story in a million different ways. So that that's something that's important to me to try and help people feel okay, you know, and 
to sort of perhaps see their own health or their own lives slightly differently and from a lens of softness and support and, you know, that they're not a terrible person if they're struggling with a certain aspect of their lives. So that's something that's important for me. Obviously, with journalism, it it is, unless I'm writing a first-person piece, it's trying to be as objective as possible. Not everything that I write is my opinion. And, you know, that that can be a struggle sometimes because you really want to, like, the human in you wants to sort of uh, bend it to your own thoughts on a, on a subject. But I guess what I try to do is let the experts speak and I'm just there to sort of present that to people and let people make their own decisions. I think that's really important, not putting my own, not projecting my own kind of opinions onto my stories mm. in first person unless it's sort of, you know, an editorial piece which is a bit different. I guess those are, those are the main things and, and just trying to be as balanced as possible. Like, you know, I guess the point is I hope that when someone reads a story that I write, they are learning something, they're perhaps a bit entertained, maybe a bit inspired, you know, it, dep- it depends on the story, but I definitely want them to be able to take something from it that is useful for them in their own lives or helpful. That's the main thing. Yeah, and it really comes through so strongly, all of those aspects that you described. I remember we did a story together, you interviewed me around the early stages of COVID and the story was around active hope. I loved that story because it was something where, you know, we move out of this space of just blind positivity into Mm -hmm. active hope and the difference and the nuances between there and the power of active hope being moving into problem solving and action planning around what's in our control as an example of the work that we've done together. And I love just the topics that you, that you um, write about and it just always inspiring. So go you, I think it's an amazing space. Who are some of the people who you have interviewed along the way or perhaps worked with as a journalist or even just in your own life who have inspired you? Oh my goodness, so many, more than I can even think of. Uh, I interviewed Michael Pollan earlier this year, he was great. I think, you know, it's, it's more the broad strokes of one thing I've really noticed is people who are at the top of their game for the most part and I find this sort of a bit counterintuitive, but there tends to be less ego. Who are like really doing well and are real experts in their field tend to be generous with their time, they're kind, they're compassionate, they're a sort of, they're a whole human. And I found that really A, inspiring, and B, I think that's helped me personally a lot, you know, there's that whole idea around success, right, that there isn't room vulnerability or there isn't room for imperfection and then you you know a a perk of my job is getting to speak to a lot of people who are doing incredible things um, and are absolute experts in their field and seeing the reality of that Mm. and ah it's it is okay to be those things you can still achieve incredible things in your life and be human Mm, I love that. And um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're all in, we are all in this together. We're all human together and we're all vulnerable together. And, you know, what I love about what you were saying about interviewing people who are at the top of their game, experts in their field and the humility and the non-ego nature and the generosity of spirit. And it's interesting because I wonder if it's 
because of these qualities that have enabled them to be in this space of expertise, as well as once they're in this space of expertise, to be able to take themselves out of ego. Um, certainly, it's a, it is an X factor. <laughs> when I'm working with high performers, the capacity to take yourself out of ego and bring yourself back to heart and authentic connection. And I would imagine, Sarah, that you as, you know, the amazing journalist that you are, have the ability to bring that out of people as well. You know, in your, in your qualities as journalist, I think that that would be really quite essential is to bring the humanity and the authenticity out of people who you interview. I know that that's, I've always felt when I've been on the receiving end of your interviews. I'm glad. Well, I think there's a genuine curiosity and that definitely helps. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't be a journalist if you're not curious. <laughs> and curiosity is a beautiful value, you know, valuing curiosity and this constant learning and it must be so fascinating. And so for people who are experiencing anxiety, who are listening to this and watching this right now, what are some things that you would love to share to help people through that uh, challenge that they might be experiencing with anxiety? Yeah, great question. Well, I feel like we've sort of, we've touched on on these things and I think, and obviously the one of the recurring ones is the compassion piece. And I think that's a huge thing for people who are anxious. I think a, a lot of people struggle with that. There's that sort of real tendency to just chastise yourself in those moments where you feel like you're not doing something the way you should be doing it. And that just kind of fuels the anxiety mm. um, and the retreat as well. Yes. Uh, from whatever is sort of creating it. I think the exposure piece is huge, you know, in whatever way that is. Those like baby steps into discomfort is really important. And then as you, I guess, as you get comfortable with the discomfort, those baby steps may be taking some bigger steps into discomfort. I've found that incredibly helpful. I think the reframing thing, which is something you talk about a lot, I found that incredibly helpful because I guess there's that tendency to just, inter- you know, you your focus becomes very internal, sort of shifting the focus back out mm. into, you know, onto the person that you're speaking with. Why do you want to be speaking with them or, you know, the event that you're speaking at that you're terrified about? Why do I want to be speaking at this thing? What do I have to say or what would I like? to say what's potentially exciting if I took the fear equation out of it Mm. why do this if I you know if I didn't have the fear I think those are all really important I guess breathing helps (laughs) you know meditation you know I have done multiple meditation courses in the past and I think that's probably been a really helpful ground way to sort of ground because again there's that tendency in moments of anxiety to hold your breath to do the shallow breathing you know that that's a it's a work in progress that's something I still struggle with in the moment if the anxiety is at a point where it's sort of taking hold mm. it can be very hard to breathe deeply like there's nothing in your body that wants to do that yeah. <laughs> the power of the breath the power of the out breath it's that that yes. long slow out breath my goodness there's so many wonderful 
top tips to help people. And, you know, as you say, it is a constant process because the anxiety will want to take over. The anxiety will want to say, watch out, protect yourself from whatever the worry stories are that are playing out. And so it is the power to build that self-awareness and to respond with these practical tools and strategies, the go-to that builds resilience over time. There's so many beautiful tips there to share with people. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm really keen to hear you've done so much and such amazing work and your and your role as a mom and responding in all of these components with such beautiful compassion. Where to from here? What's next? Oh, what's next? It has been a big year. Uh, so next <laughs> is <laughs> next is figuring out what the next adventure is. Yes. Um, what would you love that next adventure to be? If you could choose anything, what would you choose? Well, uh, look, there are a couple of things bubbling away in the background, so we'll see. But I think there's, I would love to get a book that I've been working on finished, finally. That would be, that would be nice. I'd love another big physical adventure. I don't know whether it will be quite 150Ks or, you know, I might do a marathon because I've never done a marathon. So I might <laughs> take that one up. Marathon will be a walk in the park, right? <laughs> yeah. and, you know, look, I guess work and parenting, the the upsides of those are that they are a constant learning process. They're always interesting. <laughs> Incredible. Such a joy to speak with you today, Sarah. Thank you so much yeah. for coming on the show and congratulations on the amazing things that you do and continue to do. Thanks so Take much, Jodie. Lovely chatting with you. Thanks for listening to Where To From Here. If you like what you've heard, be sure to click follow or subscribe for future episodes of Where To From Here via your podcast app. Leaving a review helps others find the podcast. And for more information, head to drjody.com.au or follow our socials at underscore drjody underscore.